following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn together in God's Word to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 2. I looked with you at some things happening at the end of chapter 1 last week, and let's look at chapter 2. I'm going to begin with verse 7. The chapter begins in a familiar way with the journey of the Magi, who were scholars and wise men from an eastern land, probably the vicinity of today's Iran. Coming to look for a child, a royal child, symbolized by a strange star they saw. When they inquired in Jerusalem, the natural place, of course, this was greeted with dismay. Herod was troubled. He inquired of his, his wise men who hadn't seen such a thing or known about it. They said, Bethlehem's the place. That's where the Magi were sent. Now let's pick it up at verse 7. I'll read through verse 21 of Matthew 2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he rose and took the child and his mother by night. And departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. This is God's holy word. If you looked at candidates for the world's hall of shame for murderous dictatorships, I can tell you that Herod, who was called the Great One, was such a rank amateur at genocide that he would not even qualify for entry to that hall. This man was half Arab, Idumean to be specific, and half Jewish. He held power in the land of Palestine in a tenuous sort of way. He was allowed to hold power by Rome, who thought that was a politically good thing, and it helped a lot that he was a personal friend of Caesar Augustus. He ruled to a certain extent, lived in luxury, and went about his building projects. But he was a man who promoted his own self-importance over everything else and would do so at any price using any violence that was necessary. We know that he had ten wives, not all at the same time. He killed three of them because he thought they were rivals. He killed two of his sons thinking they might be rivals to him. And yet, if you would compare the real criminal killers of more modern history to Herod, he had nothing on them. He killed his hundreds, maybe even his thousands, but we're talking people who have killed millions in this world. It might do for a moment to think about who those people are. Historians say Mao Zedong of China, the communist leader, gone quite a few decades now, but you older ones can certainly remember Mao. When he ruled in China unbelievably, the numbers boggle the mind. It is said that Mao was responsible for between 65 and 78 million deaths by either assassination, consignment to work camps, or forced starvation. Seventy-eight million people. It's staggering. That's a fourth of the American population. You know who's number two? Joseph Stalin. Stalin and his rule over communist Russia is estimated again, and how do you even get a count of these things? Twenty-three million probably died by the orders and the programs of Stalin. You can probably guess number three. Adolf Hitler is listed in history's annals as being responsible for between 17 and 20 million deaths, six of them Jews in the exterminations and his demented decisions made in World War II. Well, I could go on down that list, but... That's not a pleasant thing to recount, is it? This week we had a news broadcast telling of 145 school children massacred by extremists in Pakistan. 
I'm sure you already think I'm raising a very unpleasant subject, not warm or welcome as a theme the Sunday before Christmas. And I would agree with you, it's not enjoyable to think about, but the facts of the first Christmas are not all facts about misty-eyed sentimentalism. There's some very hard things, some brutal things to think about in this tale of the first Christmas. And while you did not come to church today to hear about many senseless deaths, I want to speak about things that I think the Scripture requires us to take in and and give notice to. Jesus was born, of course, according to Isaiah's prophecy, as Prince of Peace. And yet we read here in Matthew's account that from the time of his birth within months, someone of an earthly power was seeking to kill him. And of course, we know that it only took about three decades until that aim was successfully carried out. The Romans and the temple authorities in Jerusalem, they finally took a hold of Jesus and carried out an execution of him according to unthinkable bodily tortures. I'm not going to take a position on the recent releases of torture issues known by our CIA and others, but whatever those were, as I understand them, they were mild compared to what was done to Jesus, torturing him literally to death. And yet he also lived his whole life, only steps away from some kind of violence or another, and what's more, we understand and know that his disciples many, many of them have lived very close to a threat of violence and actual persecution, torture, and killing throughout Christian history. And even today, many face this. Herod's massacre of innocent toddlers near Bethlehem is a very gut-wrenching example of the murderous wrath this world reserves for the followers of Christ and Christ himself. And people are troubled by this. They ask, how can God be in sovereign control while terrorists can still have their way, bringing down city towers, as happened in 9-11? Or even an individual act, which we remember in just two years ago at Sandy Hook, New York, in an elementary school. Or even something small in scope, but no less horrifying as Two thieving punks two miles from here took a teacher's life this past week in her the safety she would have thought of her home. I'll put it in terms that some people would pose the question. We know who the great prince of peace is, but where's the peace? Where's the peace? Well, we're looking at familiar words from Matthew 2 this morning, and I first want to introduce and and comment a little on the scene there as you think about Herod, the not-so-great. After all, he was great only because he called himself that. He gave himself that title. That was not a title of popular acclaim by those he ruled. 
He was the first of several men who were called Herod, and I won't go through the family tree, but of course there was Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist and others, either somehow related to him, and and that family tree is a little complicated to trace. We don't need to trace it. But here's Herod, an insecure, half-crazed man holding great wealth, holding on to power in a very tenuous way. If he made wrong political moves, he could have been out of power. In fact, some say, had he not been a friend of Caesar Augustus, he never would have had power in the first place. And he particularly had to play it close to the vest as far as the religious leaders of the Temple Sanhedrin were concerned because he was no religious man. One way he was known or one way he actually earned some respect, I guess, was by his huge building projects. Herod's hobby was building things. And you can still see this today. Some of you who have visited the Holy Land have seen the projects of Herod. Had you been there many centuries ago, you would have seen it in the Jerusalem temple. It's even called, the temple that Jesus and his disciples saw is called Herod's temple. Well, he didn't build it in the first place, but he did a magnificent refurbishing project. Remember when the disciples said, look at it, Lord, how it glows, how magnificent it is. That was Herod's work. He had gone in there and spent what would be millions of our dollars to recondition a somewhat derelict building. Now, you would think, oh, he must have been a very devout man. He loved God and wanted to do something for the place of worship. Not at all. He wanted to curry the favor of the religious establishment and keep them on his side. Some of you who've visited that part of the world have have stood on his eagle's nest fortress called Masada on a high plateau in the desert where he built more or less an escape country home way up. You have to take a cable car to get up there. Some of you have seen the man-made harbor, one of the great uh, civil engineering projects of that part of the world where he built its Caesarea, an artificial harbor that is still today can be seen how it was constructed. These things of architectural grandiosity more or less cemented his reputation as a so-called great man. Well, Herod was brought news by these aristocratic strangers from the east of a heavenly sign they had seen, not a blazing comet or something, but an occurrence in the heaven that you needed to have a trained eye to understand what it was and, and how it was unusual. And astrology was a common thing in those days, and while the Bible doesn't support the pursuit of astrology, it does give us credence to the idea that God did use some signs in the heavens in certain ways. So here they were looking for a newborn ruler. They had come over a period of months probably traveling, and they could tell Herod when the sign first appeared, certainly months, maybe even a year before. Herod heard of this. His his advisors had not told him about it, had not noticed it, and they could go and consult the Old Testament Scriptures and say, oh, Bethlehem, that's the place. But we always notice none of them ever got up and traveled six miles down the road to inquire what was going on in Bethlehem. Well, here's Herod, who's rather paranoid about his own rule, his own hold on power, infected with self-centeredness, and many would say he 
represents what we all at least have the potential to become. Because control over things around us infects all of us. Ability to manipulate others to do our will is something that touches all of us. And, and Herod really represents that strain of raw human nature to whom the rule of one who is going to be an absolute ruler like Jesus brings rebellion and brings a pushback and say, wait a minute, I'm not ready to be ruled by someone like that. So Herod was more than just a true life villain of that day. Something of him dwells inside every sinful human being who doubts and resists the real king of the universe. We can calculate pretty closely Herod's age at this time. We think he would have been 68 years old because we know when he died and when he was born. And so here is a 68-year-old man. I have a little sympathy with 68. I'm not quite there yet, but I can imagine what goes on in the mind of a 68-year-old who's desperately trying to hold on to things that are slipping away from him. And when he's told by court scholars that the Messiah would be born in this particular town, he's very troubled. That's close by. And so he's afraid. He's afraid of the possibility of one person living in his realm over whom he did not presently exercise control, and he wondered if he could control. And it turns out that person was the true and living God. So he quakes a little bit, but he thinks, well, I know how to manipulate people. I can use these men. I can use these magi. Just report back to me so I can go and worship also. They won't know what I really have in my mind. They won't know that I intend to send a squad of soldiers to stamp out this child as soon as they're out of the country. And we know how God intervened. He intervened with yet another revelatory dream to Joseph who, hearing what was intended, scurried by night, it says, left in the middle of the night, probably Joseph was smart enough to think, even those who dwell near me aren't going to be able to tell what direction I went in. And he got up and took Mary and Jesus and went to Egypt. And that's another story in itself. Herod, of course, realizing he's been tricked, realizing the Magi weren't coming back. You see, it's, it's as if, you know, they said, we're going to hit the interstate and go straight back to Persia. No turning to Jerusalem, and they were gone. Herod is enraged, it says. When he knew he'd been tricked, verse 16 says, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region, two years old and under. You can be sure he provided a good age margin there. We would think Jesus was not more than perhaps a year at the most. Herod said, I'll make sure, add a year and kill all the two-year-olds. How many was that? Nobody knows that answer. Bethlehem was a rather small village. It says Bethlehem and the region around it, but it was a country place. Today it's in a, a far outer suburb of greater Jerusalem, but not then, just a little village, maybe a few dozen, 
That probably would be on the large side of infants, and yet a few dozen infants? That's a horrible thing. And certainly every one of them mattered to their parents and to God. Herod's plot was defeated as far as killing Jesus is concerned, and yet it brought with it collateral damage, we would call it, to people that was deeply and horribly painful. Now, I ask that we widen our view a little bit of Bible history and and stand back a little further and look forward down the halls of history and speak about the long reign of violence against the people of God, both before Herod and beyond him. That wider damage as these young boys are killed in place of Jesus has ancient historic precedence. We need to stop to consider all the battles and all the treachery and all the violence involved in the whole history of Israel in the Bible. That, that much of it is Old Testament. And many people will tell you the books of the Old Testament are some of the bloodiest books that you could ever read. Battle after battle, assassinations, secret plots, people killing one another. There are people that just reject the Bible. They say, why should I read something that's just all that violence, treachery? Well, it's because opposition was offered to the people of God from an early day onward. You can read about it in Genesis 3.15, a very, very important passage that marks the transition after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And God was speaking in sentence upon Satan, the one who introduced sinful distrust in humanity, and said this important thing to the, the evil one, I will put enmity between you and the woman, not naming the woman, but calling her the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. The first prophecy of the Bible. The first prophecy of Jesus Christ in the Bible. God predicted there would be a long-standing battle between the power of Satan and Christ, the seed of the woman, the one born of the woman as her offspring. Christ would be wounded in that warfare, that prophecy says, but Satan would be wounded in a worse way. A wound to the head is a greater wound than to the heel. Well, what happened? Soon after that, Cain rose up and killed his brother, the first murder of the world. And from that point onwards, you see strife developing. And within just a few chapters, it it raises the names of different warriors who were defiant and went out and championed their own little cause and little kingdoms and said, nobody can beat me. Anybody comes after me, I'll kill seven of them for every one of mine. Then traveling fast through Bible history, we come to Exodus and know that Israel was taken down peacefully into Egypt as a refuge during a famine and and received in a friendly way. But soon they weren't friends of the Egyptians. They were slaves, treated cruelly and harshly. And it took Moses and great works of force and miracles from God and, and then the pursuit of chariots and all of that to extricate Israel from Egypt in Pharaoh's mind. 
And then under Joshua, they came into God's promised land, a place of sanctuary and refuge. And what did they find there? Foes attacking them on every side, people hating them. And then, of course, and I'm being very rapid in my survey, you come to King David, who finally saw some major victories of this people becoming established in the land that God had given and actually taking over and and spreading out their borders. But David only accomplished that by the shedding of much blood. What we see in this big picture of the Old Testament is that Satan is always attempting to work through mankind to fight God and his Christ to fight the people of God. And then we come to the ministry of Jesus himself and find that from the very beginning he was both hated and hunted down. And we have at the cross, as we always say, the epic battle, the great crisis event of the holy war in which it seemed like Christ, God's champion, went down. But of course, in just two days' time, he rose. And the Bible looks on that as a great victory in this war. Colossians 2.15 says it this way, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. But then you say, now is it all over? Nobody who stands on God's side has to be hunted down or hurt again? No. Because the New Testament and the apostolic age opens, and what happens? Christian martyrs are shedding their blood. From Stephen to James, Peter, Paul, thousands of others who lost their physical lives for the cause of Christ. And we say, oh, well, that was long ago. You know, I knew they took Christians to the Colosseum and fed them to lions and all of that. But that was a long time ago. It's amazing, the Christian people who do not understand that the bloodiest century of all for Christian persecution was the 20th century, direct Christian persecution. Not the first, not the fifth, the 20th century. They say, oh, well, maybe it's getting better now. Well, tell that to Christians in the Middle East. There are Christian churches well established for centuries in the Middle East that have nearly been exterminated. There were many Christians in Iraq at one time. There are very few today. In other countries, they're being driven out, Egypt and other places where someone, chiefly from radical Islam, participating in the spirit that we would have to say is the spirit of Antichrist, come along and they'll say, join us or lose your head. You can criticize Christianity for whatever you want. I'm not aware of any place in the world where Christianity in any form approaches others and says, join us or you die. All this is summarized to say the Bible's master plot of conflict is going to close. It's promised that it will. It will close when God in Christ at last comes visibly back to end history as we know it and vanquish and destroy all opposition, including Satan himself. And maybe you begin to call up in your mind, aha, the book of Revelation. Oh, but pastor, that's a complex, symbolic, 
book, very difficult to follow, very hard to figure out. Let me tell you, the next time somebody tells you revelation is difficult, tell them this. Say, oh no, I've mastered it. I've mastered revelation. Do you want to know the answer, the solution to all the puzzles of revelation? I can give them to you in two words. Are you ready? Jesus wins. That's revelation. Jesus wins. The conflict of the ages will spin upon him, and he will be the conqueror, the only one standing on the field of history, and his own will be safe in him for eternity. And so thirdly today, and in conclusion, I want to ask this question, where, you might say, is this conquest of the Prince of Peace? There are those who who look at Christmas and they say, oh, what is this business of a Prince of Peace? I don't see the peace. And we say, well, what did you expect? The world to suddenly become conflict-free because he came? As a matter of fact, he said, I did not come to bring that kind of peace. I came to bring a sword. And families will be divided because of me. Because one brother chooses this side and the other brother chooses my side. There will be more conflict because of me. He did not promise that martyrdoms would not happen. In fact, he actually told his disciples, they're going to drag you off to prison and be delighted as they kill you. He predicted it. But the Word of God has guaranteed long before Jesus even came that what is eternally secured for believers in Christ Jesus, for the true covenant people of God who are saved in Him, that what they have they have eternally, and it cannot be taken from them no matter what happens to their physical bodies. This is echoed all over the book of Psalms. I, I would, could spend 20 minutes just lifting quotes out of the book of Psalms, two of them. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Though a war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That psalmist wasn't saying, I can't possibly die. I'm invulnerable. My body is Superman. No, but he was saying, no matter what happens, no matter what war brings, I am God's. Psalm 33 says this, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and shield. You see, without a doubt, Christians are going to continue to fight and die and be mocked and be imprisoned. And true believers who are bought by the precious blood of Christ and raised with Him in resurrection hope are going to be persecuted. Pastors are going to molder in Islamic and communist jails. Jesus said in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight in all the worldly ways. But that's not our objective, he said. And earlier than that, in John 16, 33, he said, In this world, you will have tribulation. But, do you know what comes after that but? Be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Herod who swaggered about with such boldness and sought Jesus with his troops of soldiers and their swords died within a year or two of that event. He was gone. And the one who's called great is only remembered for some moldy architectural relics that are left behind today. True Christians should never be troubled by the persecution of men. Yes, they can kill us. But that doesn't take away what we have. The eternal security of belonging to God through Christ. Our enemies always tend to look strong. They always tend to cause us fear. But in the end of it all, they're nothing but a vapor or a mist that God blows away. We also must be sure that we forsake the tactics of evil dictatorships and power-grabbing in our lives in the personal ways we conduct ourselves. The exercise of brute power Manipulation of others, rigid control is not a way open to disciples of Christ. Husbands need to hear that. We deal all the time with husbands who think the concept of being the head of their wife means she had better knuckle under and do everything I demand. That has nothing to do with Christ. That is not biblical headship. The Bible does not justify the use of harsh force and Herod-type exploitation of a wife or your children. Husbands, wake up. God calls you to a servant leadership of your wife and your family where mercy and truth and compassion are your armaments. A week ago, I was in a men's prayer breakfast where elder and former pastor Keith Greer was bringing devotional thoughts to us men last Saturday morning a week ago. And he spoke just briefly from Isaiah 9. That's a passage where God first announced by his prophet that a son would be born who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I I like the emphasis that Keith made. He reminded us of the background of that passage, what was going on in, in current history. The fact was that the armies of Assyria, now this would be like China of the day, the mightiest nation, the armies of Assyria were massed on the northern borders of the land of Israel at that time. They had conquered others like a grasshopper swath going through a wheat field and they were ready to come south as Isaiah made that prediction. And they did come south. And they did conquer the people of Israel not so long afterward. And yet, as Isaiah predicted, the kingdom of our God has grown and expanded and the peaceful revolution of King Jesus has remade thousands of individual lives and whole nations from that time to this. And in spite of that horrible devastation and threat from a place like Assyria, in spite of a Herod or a Stalin or a Hitler or ISIS or anybody you want to name, none of those names will ever in the providence of God quench the mission of God for his everlasting people not to simply survive and hold on by their fingernails, but to triumphantly be gathered into himself and belong to him 
for all eternity. The church and its gospel might appear to be ever so frail against any enemy at any particular moment, but folks, God is not going to allow us to sink against the the waves of any storm. You see, Herod represents just one of the so-called big kings of human history who took up arms against the so-called little king. But our God has decreed there's only one king, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever when all the Herods are forgotten in the dust. Glory be to him. Father, we're people often swept away by the fears of our news and our newspapers and our bulletins of what is going on in the world. Keep this perspective before us. We might lose our lives, and we will someday give up these bodies. What you are to us in Christ, we cannot lose. Establish us in that security. For Jesus' sake, amen.